Good morning, church. It's so good to see everyone here. My sermon is a little bit long today, so I won't go through so much pleasantries. But I want to start us off with a story as we continue our series, Apostles' Creed, right? On the 26th November 2008, a group of terrorists attacked the city of Mumbai in India. They broke out into a dozen groups or so, and they attacked different locations. One of them was this iconic 103-year-old Taj Palace Hotel. Now, for three days and two nights, it was absolute chaos in the hotel. On that day, there were about 500 guests checked into the hotel, and there were about 600 others dining in restaurants, attending functions, and so on. And these terrorists, they were swarming the hallways of the hotel with, armed with automatic rifles, grenades, and things like that. They were harming people, hitting people, threatening to shoot. It was absolute chaos. On that day, there were about 600 employees of the Taj Hotel working on duty. And some of them were very young. Some of them had children waiting for them as the sole breadwinners of their family. And we don't know a lot of the details, but what we know is this. Every single one of them knew the hotel like the palm of their hands. They knew the, the fastest escape routes. They knew the kitchen galleys. They knew all the hallways. And in other words, they knew how to get out and get out fast, okay? Now, every psychological study will tell you in a situation like that, the basic human instinct is to flee. Terrorists, I better run. But on that day, not one single employee left their posts. Some of them even came back into the hotel, although they had first evacuated. There was a group of telephone operators, they came back in to act as the center of communication, comforting guests, calling guests. There's this guy called Thomas Vargis. He's a 48-year-old waiter, and he was serving in a restaurant, a Japanese restaurant. And he asked all his 50 guests or so to crouch beneath the tables, and all the waiters form a human shield surrounding them. In fact, this was one of the guys who sacrificed in the incident. The general manager of the hotel was a guy by the name of Karambir Kang. When this incident happened, he was at another location attending a meeting. He came back into the hotel to lead uh, the rescue mission. When he reached the hotel and he saw there was a fire on the sixth floor where his wife and two kids were staying, and he tried to reach them and realized that all, all the whole of sixth floor, everyone had sacrificed in the fire. He did not stop leading the operations until the following day only then he picked up his phone and informed his family of the tragedy. And this whole situation attracted many students of corporate culture, and they wanted to answer this question. Why did this staff sacrifice their own life for customers they barely knew, right? And the answer is very simple. It was the creed of the hotel. A creed is simply a set of values and beliefs that guide our behavior, right? And the creed of the Taj Hotel goes like that. We are ambassadors 
none of the hotel, of the customer. In other words, they are telling all employees, your duty is not to take care of the interests of the hotel. Your primary duty is to take care of the customers. And this creed translated into everything they did. It was in their hiring. These guys, they don't go to the top business schools. They hire from these small towns where traditional values still hold strong. Uh, traditional values of respect, empathy. And when they go to a school, their first question isn't, hey, who got the best grades here? Their first question is, who is the most respectful student here? It translates into their training. Every employee goes through an 18-month intensive program, and regardless of your level, even management level, they are asked to serve at the front line for at least 30 days. It translates into their reward and recognition. This company pays about average in the industry, but anytime a guest writes a good review or appreciates a staff, that staff is immediately rewarded in 48 hours. No need to wait for annual bonus. Immediately rewarded. And because they live this creed out, it's no surprise they upheld their creed in the most dire of situations. And why I took some time to share this story is because it challenged my faith in a very interesting way. If these guys, because of their corporate creed, could sacrifice their life, that is how much they believe in it. How much do I or do we believe in our Apostles' Creed. And if we say we believe, how does my life demonstrate my belief? So we're gonna read the Apostles' Creed again, and I know you've read it three, four times, but this time I want you to read it with this lens. How much do I believe in every single word here? Does my life showcase every single word here? All right, let's read it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Father, we come today and we thank you for this beautiful summary rewritten, a summary that strengthens our faith. And I ask that you help us reflect on our belief and you challenge us to live out our belief. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Now, I'm tasked today to speak on the most uncomfortable sentence of this creed. And I see the first time we read this creed, some of you go like this. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy... Are we Catholic? It's not April's Fool's, right? And some of our Catholic brothers and sisters here, uh, we love you. And you'll be thinking, I told you, we are Catholic. Just kidding, right? I know Pastor addressed this a few dialogues back. The word Catholic here simply means universal, right? It's not referring to a particular denomination. 
you go out to the street today and you ask 10 people, what does church mean? You get very different answers. Some will tell you it's a weekend event. Some will tell you it's a building where we worship God. Some will tell you it's a social hub to meet friends. In fact, I remember when I was in my uni, I had a group of unchurched friends, and they really thought church was a genuine place to meet girls, right? They thought of it like a pub or club, right? I, I don't know girls will agree or not. And some of them would think that church is a place where we teach good moral teachings, and the list goes on and on. And I think many times conflict or misunderstandings in church arise because there's a mismatch in expectation. And my task today, as we talk about church, is to align everyone to the original design or meaning of the church. And so when every one of us reads, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, all of us actually mean the same thing, all right? To do that, I want to take you through a very brief summary of church history. Obviously, this topic is a very heavy topic, and today we'll just do a big brushstroke, all right? I, I put down here there's about five different eras that the church went through, and we want to start at the time where the word church was first used. It was, in fact, a few years before the first church was born. At that time, uh, people were questioning who Jesus really was. And so here Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Jesus blessed him. And here he says, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. The rock here referring to the statement that Peter made, where he is the Christ and the son of the living God. So on that foundation, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the Greek word for the word church here is the word ecclesia. And at that time, the word ecclesia was used for military purpose. So they will call out this young man to assemble, to discuss about war or to go into battle. That's when they use the word ecclesia. Ecclesia is made out of two words, out of and to call. So when you put it together in that context, Jesus meant the assembly of those who have been called out of the world to follow Jesus Christ, okay? So that's what he mean by church. When you look at the early church, and we had a whole series on that uh, last year where we went through the book of Acts. I won't go through in detail, but if you see uh, this passage in Acts 2 here, it shows you how they lived out an assembly who wanted to follow Christ, right? Devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, there's wonders and signs, breaking bread, believers was together, had everything in common, continued to meet together, broke bread in their home, ate together, praising God, enjoying the favor, and the Lord added to their number. When you add this all together, it's a picture of a group of people in one heart and one mind, and what tied them together is their desire to follow Christ, okay? This picture here, it was very scary for the Roman Empire because it challenged their social structure. Now, the Roman Empire is extremely, had extremely clear social classes. If you were a slave, you weren't allowed to own anything. If you were a woman, you were second class. If a father had a child and he didn't want a child, he could leave them in the field for them to die. 
So when the church embraced these unwanted children, embraced slaves, embraced women, the Roman Empire was threatened, right? And this was one of the key reasons why persecution happened. And last year, we covered a lot. Uh, You hear stories where uh, they will be stuffed into refrigerators, uh, prisons the size of a small refrigerators. Uh, They would cook people alive. They would set up these hot plates and just lie people on it and cook them to death. Uh, They would put people in uh, colosiums like this uh, where there'll be animals and wild bees and it will just be an entertainment for the crowd. And for hundreds of years, they tried everything they could to stop this movement, this assembly of Christians. And they could not stop it. Now, a very significant thing happened in the early fourth century. At that time, the Roman Empire was split into two, the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire. And they had two co-emperors leading uh, the, the empire. One of them was called Constantine, and the other guy is called Maxentius. Now, both of these guys, they were constantly at war because they wanted the whole empire to themselves. In one of the battles, Constantine, legend says, he saw a sign of a cross in the sky. And with the words, with this sign, you will achieve victory. And that night, Constantine said, Jesus met him in his dreams and asked him to chalk the sign of Christianity on the shield of his soldiers. So Constantine did exactly that. And the second day, he achieved victory. Now, I don't know how God placed a picture in this. No one knows. This is what Constantine felt, right? But what we know is this. On that day onwards, Constantine felt that Jesus was his personal patron, was his personal supporter. And the following year, he set up an edict that all Christians and all religions, in fact, are able to worship freely. And that was how the persecution somehow stopped, right? Now, this is a shock to the empire because for hundreds of years, they have been trying to stop this assembly, this ecclesia, this movement, right? Now, all of a sudden, the emperor says, hey, I'm actually Christian. All of a sudden, becoming a Christian was the fashionable thing to do. The rich and powerful started coming to the church and they brought along their practices with them. And that's how you started to have ornate clothing, they had choirs, they had processions and all those things. This rich and powerful, they built these beautiful buildings, the most beautiful and most expensive buildings at that time, these cathedrals which were designed to create awe. I don't know how many of you have been to a cathedral. I I went to the one in Cologne, Germany. It's absolutely stunning. It's 157 meters high. There's this stained glass and all the detailing on the structures is absolutely stunning. An interesting thing happened here where the Romans started to call these buildings basilicas. And a basilica simply means an official assembly place, okay? But the popular word that people started to use to call all these buildings was the German word Kirche, okay? I don't know if I pronounce correctly, but it's something like that. 
Kierke. Kierke, if you read it, if you Google the word church today, the origin of the word church actually is the German word Kierke. What it means is simply uh, the house of the Lord, and it was used to describe any ritual gathering place. And I want to show you a significant shift here. The ecclesia was a movement, right? An assembly. And they all follow the mission to follow Christ. A kirka, it's a building. You can lock the doors of a building, but you can't stop the movement of Jesus. And if we bring it back to home today, and I was reflecting on this, and I struggle with it a lot. I was asking myself, if today every nation loses all of our buildings, and pastors say, let's meet in the Padang, how many of us will still be here? And maybe some of you are thinking, ah, that's so extreme, it won't happen. If today, there's a blackout, no electricity, no mic, no sound, no aircon, I was asking myself, as a leader of the church here, Will I be gathering people? Hey, it doesn't matter, no electricity. We are ecclesia, right? Let's continue to worship. Or I'll be the first person to say, wow, very hot, ah. I go Tim Sam better. And I say this not to offend anyone. If you go to Tim Sam, we still love you, it's no worries. But it's something for us to reflect, right? If everything is stripped bare, will we still remain for the people and for the mission, okay? Now, let me move on. As the church continued to grow in influence, grow in influence, they started to charge people for different practices. Uh, people started paying them for communion, baptism, weddings, and all those things. And the church became so wealthy, at one point, it owned one-third of the land in Western Europe. And the church officials started indulging in all these extravagant lifestyles. They built palaces for themselves. They wore jewels all the time. And to keep up this lifestyle, they had to turn to corrupt practices to maintain this lifestyle, right? And there, there are a lot of corrupt practices. One of it is called simony. To be an official in a church, they are not chosen, chosen, by merit, or competency, or character, or calling. Church positions were sold to the highest bidder. There's this practice called the sale of indulgences, and it's very sad. The church led the crowd to believe that even though Jesus had forgiven our sins and exempted us from the eternal punishment, there was still a temporal punishment that everyone had to go through. So when you pass on in life, you go to this place called purgatory where you have to pay for your sins. After that, then you can ascend to heaven, right? So that's what they told the church. So they started selling these certificates called indulgences where if you have a certificate, it will reduce the length of punishment that you had to go through. So people would buy it for their loved ones who had just passed away. People would buy an indulgence after they committed a sin. And it was extremely corrupt. And the saddest thing was this. The common man did not have access to scriptures 
It was locked in the church, only accessible to church officials. And therefore, no one knew that church wasn't designed to be this way. It's crazy. The turning point came in the 15th century when the Ottoman Empire attacked the Roman Empire. So many scholars, due to fear, they fled to the West and they brought along these Greek manuscripts and Hebrew manuscripts. And suddenly, and as a result of that, different people started getting access to these scriptures. And when they read it, they realized, hey, that's not how the church is supposed to be. And they started to challenge the ideals of the corrupt church. There's this guy called Martin Luther. He was a key figure in this Reformation movement. Martin Luther was a German monk. And when he realized the corruption, he wrote a document called 95 Theses, which are 95 statements how he disagreed with how the church was being run. It was about the power of the Pope. It was about uh, salvation in, in Christ alone and all these things. And he nailed it to the door of his church. Now, so happened at that point, the printing press had just been invented. And the printing press helped distribute Martin Luther's ideals. And all of a sudden, there was a widespread reformation movement across Europe. And then you had John Calvin in France, you had this guy called Hudrik Zwingli in Switzerland, and all the names. One of the names I felt that was very significant to where we are today is this guy called William Tyndale. William Tyndale is the guy who translated the first English Bible. At that time, the Bible they read was usually in Latin, which most of the common people could not read. William Tyndale was so determined to make the Bible accessible to everyone. And he said this, if God will spare my life, I am going to make a farmer's boy know more about the Bible than people in church. And he started smuggling Bibles into England. For 10 years, the government of England and the church seek to arrest him. And in the 10 year, his acquaintance betrayed him and William Tyndale was tied to a pole. He was strangled with a rope and burned to death. The very interesting thing is this. In William Tyndale's translation of the Bible, you cannot find the word church. He translated ecclesia as a congregation. Now, I know these are all semantics, but my point is this. William Tyndale, he got the original meaning of what a church is to be, and he fought for that mission. If we bring it to where we are today and compare the difference between the church in the Middle Ages and the reformers, the difference in posture is this. The Middle Age church, they were self-serving, right? They did whatever they could so they could stay in power and continue to live a life of luxury. The reformers understood the mission and they did whatever they could for the mission. When we bring it to where we are, in our culture today, and I know we are not so extreme, uh, like, like the middle-aged church, right? I don't see any life group leaders selling baptism tickets, worship, pray night, right? 20 bucks. In front, 50. At the back, 20. And we, we don't do that. But in our culture of consumerism, many times we fall into this trap where we are so self-serving. 
And all of us have bouts of that. It's very funny, the tech team told me in our online service, sometimes people leave feedback, right? And, and we love feedback, no risk. So one day there was one guy who wrote online, uh, can your church have some more modern music? And that's fine. So we take that feedback, of course, we, 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 will, we will learn from there. But the funny thing is the second week he came back and he wrote this, as per my request last week, can we have some more modern music? And it's funny to me because the way, the language he used was as if he was speaking to a service provider, right? You go to McDonald's, can I have, as per my request, can I have my fries without salt, right? It's like speaking to a service provider. And we all have times like that. I remember when I was in uni and I started coming to church. Every time I came to church, I'll bring my big bottle and fill up water. Safe water, right? Free, free water. Of course, pastor won't ask me to pay back, right? And we can give anyone water. But it's not about the water, it's my thinking process. In fact, last week, I called pastor and I told him, Pastor, I'm very busy, I'm going to study my master's, I'm getting married. There are certain meetings I cannot attend anymore, I can't do so much. And pastor's very nice, he said, okay, okay, you do what you need to do. But when I reflect, I'm ashamed. Because where was I coming from? It's from myself. I was thinking, how can I maximize my time for the benefit of who? The benefit of me. If every one of the reformers thought like that, there won't be any reformation. Martin Luther would say, wow, go and fight very hard. Lah. I just continue being a monk. William Tyndale would say, well, translate Bible, what for? I know how to read can ready. I'll stay in my farm drinking milk. And I know every one of us, we have a different package of life. And it's hard. But when you look at the life of people who serve the mission, that's a supernatural element in it, which surpasses reason, surpasses human understanding. And I know it is difficult. But let us be a church that encourages each other not to serve ourselves, but to serve the mission. Lastly, the modern church. In the 17th century, European thinkers started being interested in scientific study. Before that, the world relied on past traditions to guide their behavior, right? So what the past did, I follow. That's how I live my life. When they started to apply reasoning, it changed how they look at how, it changed how they look at the world. Okay. So back then, uh, for example, they would see the stars in the sky and the planets and they wouldn't know how it works. So they would speculate, oh, is it angels holding them up and things like that. When Isaac Newton discovered gravity, now they knew how it worked, right? So there's a school of thinking called deism that arises and they basically removed anything that they couldn't prove. And to them, why do I need God? Why do I need the Bible when now human reasoning can understand how the world works? How it impacts the church is this. Certain churches started buying into this thinking and they started eliminating practices that they couldn't reason with. So the church would say, ah, this doesn't make sense to me, I'll remove it. And he split the church into two camps. On one hand uh, were the liberals 
who wanted to reinvent how church was done. On the other hand was the fundamentalists, which they wanted to keep the fundamentals. And if we fast forward to where we are today, this habit of reasoning is very much alive in our society, right? There's this movement called deconstruction in the West. You go to Reddit, you can find. Deconstruction, this is how it works. I take Christianity and I break it down into different blocks. And whatever block that doesn't make sense to me, I'll just kick it out. So you see different people commenting. There's a guy who say, wow, uh, so Christianity says no sex before marriage. Uh, it makes me become weird. I remove it. Some people say, wow, giving to the church is, is a scheme by the church. I'll remove it. And many times, and I'm not against reasoning, right? But many times after they do this, the picture is no longer like Christianity. It's no longer like the original design of how Jesus meant it to be. So that was how, how it was. When we translate to where we are here today, obviously we want to do whatever it takes to be relevant. We want to be relevant. But the big lesson is this. It should not come at the expense of the centrality of Christ. We can't say, oh, we want nice music, we want to sing pop songs, but we stop singing about Jesus. I lead the young adults. I can't just say, hey, let's just take the biblical values and we all live successful careers. And I don't talk about who Jesus is, that He is our Lord and Savior. I can't just say to appeal to young people, these few things doesn't make sense to them and I avoid these difficult conversations. The centrality of Christ is the foundation of the church. The centrality of Christ simply means we believe that He is our Lord he is our saviour. We model our life, not after influences, but after Him. We follow His teaching as the authority, not our own rational thinking. If you have ever interacted with a human, you will know that's a challenge with rational thinking, right? Because what is rational to me, what is reasonable to be, might not make sense to you. And there'll be too many different opinions to form an authority. When you look at all these churches who somehow fell it was because they deviated from the original design of the church. And I want to recap here what it means when we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. It means this, on this rock, I will build my church. It means we believe that the foundation is Jesus. I will build my church. It means we believe that Jesus is the one who built. I know you see all these church plants and some of us are scared, lack of resources. We won't be stretched. But we are at complete peace because He is the one who will build. And it says here, we believe that the gates of hell, anything shall not prevail against the church. Not the persecution in the early church didn't prevail. The corruption in the Middle Ages didn't prevail. Our human reasoning didn't prevail. The pandemic won't prevail. The instability of the government, it won't prevail. Economic downturn, it won't prevail. Our personal busy schedules, it won't prevail. Nothing will prevail against this church. That is what we believe. How much 
do we believe in the Holy Catholic Church? How much does our life demonstrate our belief? Pastor Tim is going to come up to do the communion. And I want to end with a practical practice that helped me. Many times in our lives, it's very easy to come to church and we are tired, right? We have to do a lot. We work very hard. We have kids. All these challenges we have to face. And we come to church and we felt like receiving. And there's a place for receiving. And we felt like we have nothing to give. And I realized this practice really helped me. You remember every single thing that the church has done for you. And I was doing this practice when I was driving over. It's just so many names. When I come, came over as a student, I was studying in Monash. I didn't know anyone. It was Max who brought me to church. He came to eat with me. When my house was ridden by fleas from my housemate's dog, Keith Pyong gave me a place to stay. When I was having a heartbreak, Pastor Balan was my housemate. I went to his room. He worshipped and prayed with me. When I was lost in life, PC was the one. I stayed in her house. She's my aunt. I stayed in her house for some time. Every single night, she read Purpose Driven Life with me. When I was lost in my career, it's different people. Steve Chia, Jonathan Lee Ritfield, Pastor Tim, they, they, gave me, they, they gave me advice, right? In fact, my job was connected by Vivian. When I was looking for a community, I met some of my best friends in church. It's Jessica Chan, Matthew. We all had such a good time and the best memories. I'm planning for my wedding. It's Sharon who approached me and asked whether she could help me. And she's more excited for my wedding than me. And when you, the list can go on and on. And my point is this. When we come from a place of gratitude, we stop thinking, what more can the church do for us? And we start thinking, what can I do for the church? Father, we thank you for your church. This gift that you have given to us. Lord, you understand where every one of us are at. Our challenges, our package of life. But your grace is ever so sufficient. We believe in your church and we will build this church together with you. This church, nothing will prevail against it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.